Thank you, Rob. This thing is sort of droopy. <clears throat> Looks like a lot of people were in five points yesterday. <laughs> Didn't make it in this morning, so <laughs> glad the rest of you somehow made it out of bed. Um, so as Rob mentioned, we're continuing our study of the book of Exodus this morning. We've been doing this for the past few months now. Um, and you'll remember we began all the way back in Exodus 1 in January and um, have been going through this uh, at different chunks at a time through the narrative of the Israelites in Egypt, uh, the story of the plagues, crossing the Red Sea, and then they're now in the wilderness. And last week Rob taught on the Israelites as um, they were receiving manna in the wilderness and understanding um, everything that went along with that there. So today we're going to be in chapter 18 of Exodus. <clears throat> um, this is a little bit of an interlude in the Exodus story. So, you know, the, this grand narrative of the book that we've been going over the past couple of months um, sees all these really fantastic sweeping events that take place, and God is just wreaking destruction upon the Egyptians. Um, he's drawing the Israelites out. And then later in the book, we have all of the events at Mount Sinai and all of these fantastic things um, that happen there with the Lord coming down. <clears throat> and this chapter uh, feels a little bit different in character. It's sort of quieter um, and has a smaller focus to it. Um, and so it's sort of an interlude in this grand narrative that we have in the book of Exodus. But nevertheless, I think there are many things that we can learn from this that are applicable to our lives. <clears throat> when we began this study of the book of Exodus several months ago, um, I would reference a commentary from Matthew Henry um, that he had written on this as well. And at the beginning, um, in the introduction to that commentary, he says, the book of Exodus relates the forming of the children of Israel into a church and a nation. We have hitherto seen true religion shown in domestic life, and now we begin to trace its effects <clears throat> on the concerns of kingdoms and nations. This pollen is getting to me still this morning, so I hope you all can bear with me. <clears throat> And so we've seen this um, in the book of Genesis. We see the focus of the scriptures on the immediate family of Jacob and his sons. And now the scope of it is widely broadened to the vast multitude of the Israelites that now are inhabiting the wilderness outside of Egypt. <clears throat> and it's in this wilderness that they begin to be formed into a nation, a people that are set apart for God. Um, it's also here that the foundation of the church truly begins. Um, this is God's covenant people establishing the patterns and the customs that would carry forward all the way to today, um, to which we ourselves are now heirs. Um, and so with that, let's go ahead and turn to our text this morning. Hope you have your Bibles with you. We are in Exodus chapter 18. We're going to start with verses 1 through 12. Now Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father is my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped, at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. 
Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they, sent, they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness that the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. So we could see here at the beginning of the story that the word of the exploits of Moses um, and uh, of God through him in the land of Egypt had spread far and wide. Uh, The hand of justice that God had brought down on the Egyptians um, and the judgment that he had rendered against them um, was spreading, as a rumor does, across the Mediterranean world. And eventually, it had reached the ear of Jethro. When Jethro heard this, um, he decided that, um, hearing that they had left Egypt and were now in the wilderness, that he would go with Moses' wife and sons and meet them in the wilderness. Uh, It's kind of evident from reading this that Moses had sent uh, Zipporah and their sons away for the events of the Exodus so that they would be far away from the harm that was coming upon them um, and the troubles that they had in leaving Egypt. And so when Jethro returns to Moses here, the first joy that we have here is the reunion of Moses' family. He gets to see his wife and sons and father-in-law again. And it's that joyful attitude that they approach uh, this conversation that follows. So Jethro and Moses see one another, and they begin inquiring of each other's welfare. Um, One can only imagine what Moses is telling of the story of the Exodus must have been like. Uh, how the Lord had made manifest all of his great power in the land of Egypt um, and how he broke Pharaoh's hardened heart and allowed the Israelites to leave. And we should pay special attention to how Moses describes uh, the telling of the story here in chapter 18. Though it was by Moses' staff that the sea was divided and it was at the word of he and Aaron that all of these miracles were performed many times before Pharaoh's own eyes um, and that plagues were brought down from the heavens against the Egyptians, though Moses was the one and was the instrument of the Lord that was orchestrating all of these things, he gives credit to God for the one that actually made this happen. He says, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. It was the Lord who rained down judgment on the Egyptians, that they might see his power, and it was the Lord who rescued the Israelites from the dangers that they faced. Moses was there, but it was accomplished by God. Matthew Henry said of this, Whatever we have joy of, God must have the praise. And so we should note um, that in our, the telling of anything that happens in our own lives, of all the great things that we have joy of, of all the great things that we receive, of the many great accomplishments that we will all have in our lives, um, while we are present for them, it's God who gets the credit. God is the one who gave us the skills. God is the one who set us in these places. And God is the one who deserves the glory for all the things that happen in our lives. 
<coughs> we should also note um, here the encouragement that comes to Moses and to Jethro at the telling of what God has done. Um, the people of God are edified in the telling of his works and they're strengthened in hearing of his salvation. And this is why we gather together for fellowship on Sunday mornings. This is why we gather together at other times. Um, it's in the telling of these things to one another that we are mutually encouraged. Um, we gather to worship the Lord and to encourage and edify one another in the Lord. Uh, Paul makes a similar point when he's writing his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at least by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gifts to you, that you may be established." That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I think Moses and Jethro had a similar attitude to this. They were coming together for the mutual encouragement of one another, to speak a word to one another of all that God had done. And may we do the same when we gather here each Sunday morning. So as Moses relays the account of everything that's happened, you can imagine Jethro's reaction to that. He had heard these rumors. Um, spreading throughout the land of all that God had done in Egypt. But to hear it from Moses, um, it had to be even more amazing than what the rumors were that were spreading around. <clears throat> and so Jethro's response to this is the natural human response when we hear of things like this, and it's praise and worship. Um, his response here echoes many other characters in scriptures, or really maybe foreshadows is a better term for it, many other characters in the scriptures who had similar responses. Uh, perhaps two of the most famous ones are Nebuchadnezzar and Darius in the book of Daniel, who see God work these miraculous things, delivering um, the Israelites from the furnace or rescuing Daniel from the lion's den. Um, and their responses to seeing these miraculous things unfold is to give praise to God for what he's done. And I think those are good examples of this, too, because we see here that Jethro is a priest, uh, if you remember that from chapter 2 and 3 when Moses goes to Midian after fleeing Egypt. Um, but he's not a priest of Israel because that office didn't even exist yet. And so um, it's not certain in the reading of the text uh, that um, Jethro is even part of the people of God, but it, it kind of seems as though he was a Gentile. And so um, he perhaps was a priest of pagan gods in a foreign land. And nevertheless, he recognizes the power of God in what he's done in Egypt and gives praise to the Lord because of that and quickly sees that the Lord is greater than all gods. <clears throat> this is one of the simple truths that God tried to communicate to the Egyptians. It was one of his purposes in bringing the plagues against the Egyptians. If you remember back to chapter 7 when we were going through those, um, Moses records uh, God speaking to him saying, When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. One of the purposes of God in bringing the plagues on Egypt was so that they would know that he is the Lord and that their pagan gods are not the ones that ought to be followed. And this is not just a trivial point in the Exodus story or in the scriptures in general. Uh, as we'll see when the Israelites um, arrive in Sinai and re receive the law, um, the first commandment 
in the Ten Commandments that's given is that thou shall have no other gods before me. God is supremely jealous for his own glory, and he will not bear um, any rival to take that glory from him. <clears throat> and this point is so important, it's embedded even into the creation account uh, in the book of Genesis, which Moses is also the one that writes. Um, the Egyptians and um, many of the other cultures of that time had um, all of their gods, and they had these sort of capricious gods that were made in the image of men, and they ruled these petty domains, um, and each one of them would have some designated area of authority. Ra was the god of the sun, and Osiris was the god of the dead, and um, there were gods of the wind and gods of the sea and all of these other things, as we see with the Greeks and the Romans that would come beyond, uh, after the Egyptians. <clears throat> and so all of these gods are petty gods that rule some small domain. Um, but we see in even the Genesis account that the Lord is the maker of the sun and of the moon and of the stars and of the planets. He's the maker of the land and the sea and all the creatures that are in them. He's the one God over everything, and those things are mere creations as well. Um, one theologian <coughs> said it well, speaking of the creation. He said it was given as a gratuitous work of transcendent love to be received with gratitude, delighted in as an act of divine pleasure, mourned as a victim of human sin, admired as a radiant manifestation of divine glory, recognized as a fellow creature. It might justly be cherished, cultivated, investigated, and enjoyed, but not feared, not rejected as evil or deficient, and certainly not worshiped. <clears throat> this is an important fact in the history of Israel too. The future chapters of the book of Exodus and really of much of the rest of the Bible is the, Israel, uh, the Israelites whoring after foreign gods and going after the customs of their wicked neighbors. And um, the Lord has to remind them in this story as he does elsewhere in the scriptures that he's greater than all the gods and that there is no other God before him. And Jethro, this is his recognition when he hears all of this from Moses. And so, um, after this conversation, we return to their meeting in the wilderness um, and the meeting of Moses and Jethro in particular. I think this is a good point for us again to remark on the purpose of the Exodus narrative. We've said this, I think, virtually every week, but it bears repeating every week. Um, the Exodus story is an important story in the scriptures, one of the most important, not only because it records real events that actually happened to real people in a real place at a real time, but also because God had a double meaning in all of these events unfolding, and the other meaning in that is to provide an example and a template and a metaphor for our own lives and how we should live in the new Christian era. And uh, I think, as we've said, you can take that allegory uh, from the Exodus story to our lives, and you can take it all the way down across the story. <clears throat> and so we've rehearsed at length um, in the earlier parts of Exodus of what it means when the Israelites were dwelling in Egypt and how that's um, sort of analogous to our condition of being held in bondage to sin. And then when they're delivered out of Egypt um, and they cross the Red Sea, sort of the moment of salvation, they, they have been set free from the bondage of sin and they are now heading toward the promised land. Um, but what's often, I think, lost in the story, and I'm not sure we've discussed it much yet, is what the Lord intends when he declares that he means to set his people free. We all talk about freedom 
um, basically all the time. There, there are few words more embedded in the American vocabulary and psyche than the concept of being free, the concept of having liberty. Um, this goes all the way back to our founding and is discussed as much, if not more today, than it was then. Um, it, the notion or the desire to be free is uh, inextricably linked to the human experience. There's just nothing else like it. Um, but I think the modern idea of freedom is in many ways divorced from that, even of the American founding, and certainly much more from the scriptures. Um, the kind of freedom that we talk about today is this sort of libertine freedom that is just endless choices and no constraints. Um, and it's this sort of shapeless void where anything goes, but everything means nothing. And so um, this is the problem that we find ourselves in today. And I think there's an analogy with that in the Exodus story here. Um, the Israelites are leaving Egypt and they want to be free. They want to be set free from this bondage that they're in there. And that's well and good. Everyone wants that. Um, but they get out of Egypt and they have uh, loosened the chains of slavery that the pharaohs have fastened on them over the centuries. Um, but once they left the land of Egypt and they crossed the sea, they're still not truly free. They're no longer slaves in Egypt, but they're not in a home that belongs to them. They're not in a place that has um, its own structure and order. They're wandering in the wilderness. Um, they're no longer slaves, but they're also not home. And this is sort of the fate of uh, many people in our world today. I, I, th there's a temptation to all of us, I, I certainly feel it, of cynicism. Uh, when you see things and, and you just kind of throw up your hands and say there's nothing left to do. Um, and it's better to be a cynic than it is to be naive. Um, you know, the naive are the ones that are still dwelling in Egypt. You're, you're still there and the, the pharaohs have hoodwinked you and um, you're held in bondage to sin. <clears throat> and that's not a good condition to be in. And the cynics um, will very often see that and say, well, we don't want to be there. And so we're wiser than that, but we're not going to trust anyone. We're not going to move beyond that. Um, and there's a temptation for many people to be stuck there. but. Um, that's not what it means to be truly free, and those that um, are wise to the miseries of despots and emperors and pharaohs um, haven't yet been enlightened to um, rightly regard what they ultimately should look for in this life. It, it's good to be free, it's good to be wiser um, than it is to be naive, but you have to ask yourself to what end are we doing all of those things? And so th there's this idea um, in our American philosophy, there's this idea in the scriptures of ordered liberty, and that true freedom can only exist when there's a set of rules that preserves peace, provides order, and gives structure. Um, it gives an arena, or perhaps a better term, maybe a more biblical term, is a garden in which human flourishing can grow and prosper. And it's this moment for Israel that begins in this chapter. They've left Egypt, and that's good, but now they must undergo the task of being formed into a people and a nation and to settle a land that they can call their own where they can actually be free. I think this is the great metaphor for the Christian life. We all have these dual desires that are pulling at us when we're standing in the wilderness. Um, and we see this over and over again in the Exodus story as well. The Israelites have left Egypt and there's a part of them that wants to go back to Egypt. There's this uh, return and this temptation to this thing that we knew, and even though it was oppressive, it was a known quantity and something that we could tolerate. And then there's this other group that wants to quickly get to the promised land and rush through the process, 
But those that have just been freed from Egypt are not fit to dwell in their own land and rule themselves yet. And what God means for the Israelites here um, is for them to decide, for them to arrive in the promised land, but under his terms and um, as he would have them be when they arrived there. God is forming them into a people along the way, so to speak. Um, and so as we ourselves are pilgrims in this life, um, we have left the land of Egypt and we have not yet arrived in the promised land. The Lord is likewise molding us into the people that he would have us be. Um, we should rightly praise God for breaking the chains of slavery that we once wore. But now we should look to the eternal home and have God make us into fitting citizens for that home when we finally arrive and heed the word that he would give to us along the way. I think this is what we see happening to the Israelites as they're wandering in the wilderness. So turn with me again back to our text this morning, picking up in verse 13. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit as judge, and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me and to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. So as they were going along, Moses had established himself as the leader of the Israelites. I, I sort of enjoy the, the divine irony that you kind of see in this moment of the story too. If you remember at the beginning of the Exodus story, when Moses first flees to Midian and uh, meets Jethro for the first time there, <clears throat> the circumstances under which he did that are because he killed a man in Egypt. He killed one of the Egyptian overseers. And you remember after that um, incident, but before he had fled, he had sought to resolve a dispute between two of the Israelites in Egypt. And one of them who was fighting um, said to Moses, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Um, and in the light of years that followed that, we can see um, that God indeed did make Moses a prince. Um, by his divine providence, he put him into the house of Pharaoh um, and established him there for his purposes. And he also set Moses as a judge over the people who now, rather than Moses intervening in their lives, are voluntarily bringing their disputes to him. Um, and it shows, again, the, the reversal that happens so often in scriptures where God takes the most unlikely people and turns them into his instruments to use for his glory. <clears throat> and so with that, Jethro takes notice of the task that is before Moses, and he understands the gravity of it. It's really too much for any man to bear. Picking up again in the scriptures in verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, and I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. <clears throat> then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to work and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of the people of Israel able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them be judge, 
Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure all these people, and they will also go with you to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times, the difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went on his way to his own land. <clears throat> this is the story of the wise man who listens to wise counsel. Um, you can imagine the undertaking of sitting in judgment over an entire nation would be one that would be too unwieldy for any man to bear. <clears throat> um, not only was Moses short of the strength required to bear that responsibility, but <clears throat> being responsible for such a vast multitude would deprive them of the justice that they would require from a man who was too weary to undertake the task. Matthew Henry again um, wrote of this in his commentary. There may be overdoing even in well-doing. Wisdom is profitable to direct that we may neither content ourselves with less than our duty nor task ourselves beyond our strength. <clears throat> we must all do what is required of us. There's no room in the Christian life for the dereliction of duty, even when weariness sets in and the arduousness of whatever task we have before us weighs heavily upon us. But there is another danger too that we press ourselves beyond our ability for too long of a time, draining the vitality of our own strength and also failing to give our best to others who need it from us. And so the wise man is gonna be one who lives in tension between these two points. And Moses is a wise man and he does exactly as Jethro says. He heeds Jethro's advice and appoints judges and rulers of varying levels. Um, these numbers here are, are sort of similar to the divisions that you would have in an army where there would be commanders and generals set over thousands and lieutenants and captains and all the way on down um, who would rule smaller and smaller divisions of the people. <clears throat> and um, with that, Moses stands as the supreme magistrate. All of Israel can appeal their case to Moses, but the smaller cases can be decided by lesser judges. And the appointment of such men is itself a task of great importance. Um, Jethro lays out here, I think by the wisdom of God, that not all men are fit to sit as judges over the people. And um, God, through Jethro, fashions the standard by which those men should be measured and selected. And he gives four, uh, four things to look for in these men. The first is that they're able. They have to be capable of the task that's before them. Um, it's a difficult thing to sit in judgment and to rightly adjudicate cases and to do so um, with justice and honesty and righteousness. And not everyone is capable of doing that sort of task. And so they must be capable of doing the job. They must be men who are able to undertake this task. Um, furthermore, they have to be men that fear God. Um, if they don't fear God, they will fear others and vice versa. If they, if they are men who fear God, they will not be in fear of others. Another thing, um, really what it means to fear God uh, is to be self-controlled. The man who fears God will be able to control himself because he fears the divine judgment that can come. Um, and if a man is like that, he will not have to be put under the compulsion of other men. 
I'm reminded of uh, a phrase from G.K. Chesterton, um, who one time was speaking of something like this, and he said, if you, will not be, um, if you will not be ruled by the Ten Commandments, you will be ruled by the Ten Thousand Commandments. <clears throat> and the idea of that is that if, you're not, if your life is not going to be governed by God, and you're not going to be ruled by the, the ordinances that he gives us for how we should conduct ourselves, and that the spirit is not dwelling in us and um, dictating how we live every day, then we will have to be ruled from the outside by someone, and we are going to be ruled one way or another. And if we're not ruled by God, then we are going to be ruled under the compulsion of other men. <clears throat> and that's when you have um, bureaucrats and tyrants that will make 10,000 ways to run your life because you can't control your life yourself. And so uh, this is an important point that I think we see illustrated here as well. They also must be um, men of truth. They have to be honest in their dealings. Um, and they have to um, not be fond of unrighteous gain. So there's no amount of bribery that can take place there that would buy them off. And even if they could get away with it, they wouldn't do it because they'd know that it's wrong. These are the men that are fit to judge a nation. <clears throat> and the Lord is establishing that standard here in chapter 18 as well. I think. Um, even though it's not an explicit connection, I, I think this also um, has a similarity, at least, to the structure of the church that we see in the New Testament. Um, when we read in the epistles of the requirements for deacons or elders, um, or those who are appointed as author um, in authority over the church, they have similar requirements. They must be men of good repute, above reproach, able to conduct themselves in a good way. They must be trustworthy. They must not be given over to unrighteous gain or have all of these desires that would control them in some other way. And so um, the standard that's set here for the judges in the book of Exodus, I think, is carried forward all the way through into the New Testament by the traditions and the customs that follow after that. And we also see here one other point, um, which is important to make here. Moses um, and those that he appoints after this sit as judges. But what they are not is legislators. Um, Moses and Jethro says to Moses that his responsibility is to teach them, being the Israelites, the statutes, the, statutes, the laws, and to make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. All that they are doing is communicating the laws that God has given and then judging um, with justice based on the standards that God has given. Moses' role is not to decide what is right and wrong, but to apply the right and wrong standard that the Lord has given to the situation. And so he's very careful to specify what he does. And Jethro's advice is also good, too, in that he says, I'm going to give you wise counsel, but then in verse... Um, 24, or I'm sorry, in 23, he says, um, if you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will go and appoint these men over you. And so he says, I give you this advice, but take all of the advice before the supremely wise one who will give you wisdom in all things, and that is God. And so um, the last point that I think we want to pay attention to with this is um, Moses' humility in listening to Jethro and taking his advice here. If we think about it, it's a somewhat remarkable thing that Jethro, even though he's Moses' father-in-law, um, would even feel able to give Moses advice like this. 
Moses had just led this vast nation out of Israel by the power of God, um, who had given him divine authority even over the created order to go um, bring plagues down on the Egyptians so that they can rescue them. Um, he was raised in the wisdom and knowledge of the palace of Pharaoh. He grew up with the, the heritage and the wisdom of the family of Jacob and then had experienced all of these things in his long life up to this moment already. In this chapter, Moses is 80 years old already. So he's a man with great experience and great knowledge already. And yet Jethro comes to him and gives him advice and says that this thing that you're doing is not good. Um, and perhaps what's even more remarkable than Jethro feeling that he can give that advice is that Moses listens to his advice and does what he says. Um, Moses uh, hears the words of Jethro, sees its reasonableness, and alters his course. <clears throat> it reminds me of um, many verses in the book of Proverbs, but we'll reference a couple of here. Um, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, it says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. And then a few chapters later, it says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. How many people do we know who um, have all the wisdom of scriptures available to them and even will hear advice from wise and learned men, and they will discount that wisdom and continue in the course that they're already on, and it will always lead to uh, the thing that the wise and the learned ones had warned them would come upon them. Um, I think many of us have done this in our own lives, and we can look back and say, I should have listened to the advice of this person, and instead I was foolish and proceeded in my own way, and look at what it got me. Um, and so the wise man is the one who will heed the counsel of wise men. And um, I think what we see from the Proverbs here is really an illustration of what Jesus speaks about in the parable of the talents in the book of Matthew. Um, you'll remember the sort of lesson from that parable is, um, or the, the, the final word of Jesus in that parable is that um, to him who has more shall be given and to him who does not have even what he does have will be taken away from him. And wisdom in some ways follows a similar pattern. Um, those who are wise will be still wiser and those who are not wise um, will persist in their foolishness and in their folly. And so um, the wise man is going to be the one who listens to the counsel of wise men, who listens to the counsel of the scriptures and listens to the counsel of those who would give wise and godly advice. <clears throat> and I think the charge for us is that we um, need to likewise seek counsel like that. And even more importantly, when we receive the counsel is to go and do as they um, advise. We're all still relatively young and the world is filled with all sorts of difficulties and complexities and um, there will come many, many moments in life where the way in front of us is not clear. And so to take advice from um, godly and experienced people is to be wise and to proceed in our own ignorance is unwise. And so um, the wise man will become still wiser if he listens to the advice of wise men. And we see that pattern illustrated perfectly here with Moses and Jethro. <clears throat> um, and so as we come to the end here, um, and we kind of recap what we've covered in this chapter, I think uh, we see that there's an excellent template for how we ought to regard God and how we ought to regard one another. 
Um, Moses and Jethro demonstrate the really deeply Christian value of mutual edification to one another and of godly counsel given to one another. Um, their coming together and telling of the works of the Lord offers encouragement and edification um, and strengthens each of them in their walk as they go their way. And they also are able to give and to receive godly and wise counsel to do the right thing, not only for themselves, but for their people. And so um, I think this is for us to consider as well, as um, if we are to cast ourselves in this story, so to speak, as we're traveling from Egypt to Canaan, as we're going from um, bondage under the Pharaoh to the promised land. Uh, we have a vast desert before us along the way of wandering in the wilderness to some degree. Um, and so may we heed, of the, heed the word of the Lord as we're traveling along the way. And um, in that process, I think, we'll be transformed from the lowly sinners who dwelt in Egypt um, to the godly and righteous citizens fit to dwell in the land that the Lord has given us. And so um, may we take lesson from that and apply it to our lives. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word and how it teaches us, how it instructs us um, in the right way of living and how it teaches us more about you. We ask that you would help us to apply it to our lives, that you would help us to remember that um, you are seeking to make us into a people um, fit for your city to dwell with you forever. And so as we travel along the way, Lord, help us to listen to those um, who would give wise and godly counsel, help us to consult the scriptures and to honor and glorify you um, in everything we do. Lord, we pray for um, Wes as he brings a message in the next service that our hearts would be in a posture of worship um, and that we would give you everything we have. We love you and thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Rob. Uh, as, we, uh, as we do... Uh,